First Timothy chapter 6 and we're going to be looking today at verses 17 through 19. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. Amen. You can be seated. Well, Paul is approaching the conclusion of this letter that he sent to Timothy. And as he comes to the conclusion, he again brings up the subject of riches. You might remember uh, a number of weeks back, we looked at this section from 6 through 10 in the same chapter where he's talking about money and possessions. And really these two sections should be taken together. Uh, Previously, that section uh, 6 through 10 dealt with people who wanted to get rich. You see that in verse 9. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation. Uh, And of course he warned them that the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil and has some other things to say there. But these present verses are a little different because here he's speaking to people who are already rich. See, that first group was ones who wanted to be rich. Here he's speaking to people who are rich, uh, which shows that the church was not all poor people and slaves. It was predominantly that, but there were some rich people there. And I guess that shouldn't be surprising if we study the history related to Ephesus. It was actually a very rich and prosperous city. And apparently some of these well-to-do people had become Christians, had embraced Christ. Paul does not chide them for being wealthy, nor does he tell them that they should give up all their possessions. Uh, But he does give them two warnings, two special warnings uh, concerning temptations that come to rich people. And then on the positive side, he gives them at least four ways that they can use their wealth Uh, to contribute to their eternal welfare. So that's what we're going to look at, these two warnings that he gives to rich people and then four ways that uh, rich people, those who have some wealth, can use that to contribute to their eternal welfare. So what are the special temptations that come to a rich person? Well, Paul says, first of all, that they should not be conceited which means there's a temptation there to be conceited, to be proud. Um, It's a a temptation for all of us, but there's this special temptation for a rich person to be proud because of his riches or her riches. Rich men are prone to boast in their riches. We learned that back in Jeremiah 9.23. Do not let the rich man boast in his riches. That's a common uh, characteristic. Uh, to think of themselves as better than other people because they have more money and possessions. Uh, They are tempted, the rich person is tempted, to think in a high-minded manner because they believe that their great intellect or ability 
brought them this wealth instead of God's mercy and kindness and grace. God especially warned his people, his own people, about this back in the Old Testament as they were about to enter the promised land. So I thought we could just look at that because it's, uh, it kind of shows it, uh, what Paul's uh, hitting on here. So Deuteronomy chapter 8, <clears throat> and this is God speaking to his people as they're about to go in and take possession of this bountiful land. Uh, Deuteronomy 8, and just one verse here to begin with in verse 7. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and of springs flowing forth in valleys and hills. And he goes on to talk about all the, the, the abundance of this land. But if you skip down to verse 11, Beware, lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his ordinances and his statutes, which I command you this day. Lest when you have eaten and are satisfied and have built good houses and lived in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and gold multiply and all that you have multiplies, then your heart becomes proud. There's that, that temptation, you see, for pride to come in. Then your heart becomes proud and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And if you skip, back, skip down to verse 17, Otherwise you may say in your heart, My power and the strength of my hand made me this wealth. See, it's the temptation. I, you know, I, because of my great ingenuity, because of my abilities, I have this. Instead of realizing this was God-given, God's grace, God's mercy. Uh, verse 18, but you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who has given you power to make wealth. Anybody that has any wealth, God gave them the power. The mind that we have, the strength that we have in our hands and arms to make any wealth from, where did you get that? God gave it to you. So, he says, he, it is he who has given you the power to make wealth that he may confirm his covenant which he swore to you, or your fathers, as it is this day. So that temptation. Paul would have these rich people realize that their riches did not, do not make them better than anybody else uh, or any nearer to heaven. To be rich in this age does not make one any richer in the age to come unless they use that wealth properly in a righteous manner. It's important for all of us to remember that a person's money and possession are no gauge of the state of their soul. Uh, it's just easy to kind of uh, look at that person that's dressed real nice and think, well, they must be closer to God. Well, they may just be able to dress a little nicer than somebody else. It doesn't mean any, necessarily they're any closer to God. Rich people are often very poor spiritually. But it's also true that a poor person who desires to be rich also needs to see that uh, their real need is God and not gold. So rich or poor, we both need to see, everybody needs to see that. So that's the one temptation. The next temptation for a rich person is to fix their hope on material possessions. For the wealthy, there is always a danger of trusting in material security instead of in God. But this is very foolish, 
foolish to trust in something so untrustworthy as wealth. It's so fleeting, so uncertain. It's not the type of thing you should put your trust in. Uh, wealth can be here today and gone tomorrow. How foolish to set our hope on something that is so easily lost and must be left behind at death. You, I can be, you can be sure you're not going to take it with you. And you may lose it before you die anyway. Uh, Proverbs 23, 4 and 5 says this, Do not weary yourself to gain wealth. Cease from your consideration of it. When you set your eyes on it, it is gone. For wealth certainly makes itself wings. That's quite a picture, isn't it? Just picture your bank account. (laughs) (laughs) Goodbye. (laughs) Wealth makes itself wings. The true place we should fix our hope is on the unchanging God, not something so fleeting as wealth. He's all-sufficient, eternal, immutable. Um, He richly supplies his people with those things that they need and often very far, very much beyond their needs. Riches are uncertain. God is not. He is consistently the giver of good things. See what he, how he puts it here? Don't trust in the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. All things to enjoy. Um, he gives us many, many things to enjoy. Many things in his creation he's provided, and he wants us to enjoy them. I was thinking of this verse in... James, every good thing bestowed and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. See, he doesn't change, and he gives us good things. As we brought out, as we've been going through this letter, there was an early strain of what later was called Gnosticism, uh, a strain of Gnostic asceticism, that Paul was battling against there at, at, at Ephesus. You might remember he was talking about men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared by those who believe and know the truth. So he was battling against this, this early Gnosticism. And these verses right here show that that attitude was wrong, that such asceticism runs counter to the divine will. God has a fatherly delight in his children enjoying his creation. But we must remember that the source of these things is God. And he richly supplies us with these things, but they're to be used according to his will, which is what Paul then brings up next. The thought of God's great generosity leads Paul to speak of the positive duties that a rich Christian should be instructed in. These are things now that Paul wanted Timothy to talk to these rich Christians about, these people who had some abundance of wealth. Verse 18, instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be gracious and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future. So, four things that 
the rich person, the rich Christian, should do or, or how they should use their resources. First, because they have much, they should seek to do much good. This is a use of wealth that pleases God, being rich in good works. That, I, that's a good phrase, isn't it? Just think about being rich in good works. That's, that's, that's the kind of riches that pleases God, being rich in good works. To use wealth in that way truly pleases God, and uh, it's, it's something that we should consider if God's given us more than we need in areas, maybe we can be rich in good works with some of this. Uh, here's a way of putting it, I think. The rich should use their riches to be rich in good works. The rich should use their riches to be rich in good works. Being generous like God has been to them. God's, how'd you get this? Well, God was generous with me. So you turn around and you want to be that way with other people. If God has blessed you with riches, seek to bless others with it. Be ready to share when you see need. If a rich person is like that, they will see the truth of what Jesus taught when he said it's, it's more blessed to give than to receive. They'll actually find out that that's true. It's more blessed to give than to receive. Givers, not graspers, are the truly rich people. Yeah, this is what we're told in, in Proverbs 11, 24 and 25. There is one who scatters, yet increases all the more. You scatter out some of that uh, abundance. There is one who scatters, yet increases all the more. There is one who withholds what is justly due, but it results only in want. You're going to keep it, and you end up realizing this made things worse. Ends only in want. The generous man will be prosperous, and he who waters will himself be watered. He who waters will himself be watered. Jesus said this in, the, in an even stronger way. He said, give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, they will, they will pour it into your lap. He's saying, if you just be generous, you'll see how, how much you'll prosper from that. Now, he may not be talking about materially. Uh, well, let me just finish the verse there. He says, for whatever measure you deal out to others, it will be dealt to you in return. God may not make, you, make your material wealth greater, but he will give you something that many wealthy people don't have. And that's joy and peace and contentment. Godliness with contentment is great gain. There's great riches there. Godliness with contentment. And more than that, you will be storing up for yourself the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that you may take hold of that which is life indeed. You see that at the end of uh, verse 19. Storing up for yourself the treasure of a good foundation so that you may take hold of that which is life indeed. How a rich person handles their prosperity will make a difference in their eternal welfare. If wealth is used selfishly, it will become a rich person's ruin. Rich person uses that selfishly, it will be their ruin. Rich Christians 
are to be counseled to deal with their earthly riches in ways that are out, that we're just told to share, be ready to uh, generous and ready to share, doing good works, in order that they may become truly rich and lay hold of the supernatural life of God for all eternity. Back in verse 12, Paul told Timothy to take hold of eternal life by fighting the good fight of faith. You see that little phrase, take hold, that they may take hold of eternal life or take hold of what is life indeed. Well, Paul was telling Timothy that earlier to, to take hold of eternal life. This involved Timothy using the gifts that God gave him to advance the gospel. Here Paul tells Timothy that rich people can lay hold of eternal life by using the gifts that God gave them. The one was in the spiritual realm, this is in the material realm, but there's still gifts from God. Timothy had various spiritual gifts, and he was to use those to take hold of eternal life. These people had gifts from God in the material realm, and they were to use those to take hold of eternal life. So the principle is this. The proper employment of whatever gifts God has given you whether material or spiritual, will make a difference in eternity. I want to say that again. The proper employment of whatever gifts God has given you, whether material or spiritual, will make a difference in eternity. Every time that God shows us that we should give and we do not give, we lessen the wealth that could be laid up for us in heaven. Every time we use the resources for good and generous provi- for good and generous provisions that would advance the gospel and would show God's love to the world, we increase the riches laid up for us in heaven. We don't think about this a lot of times. You know, it's like we're either in or out. But that's not what these verses are teaching. You can make a difference in eternity by what you do with the things that God's given you in time. One writer put it this way, if wealth is used to bring help and comfort to others, in becoming poorer, the wealthy person really becomes richer. Got to think about that a little bit. But he's saying, okay, the, the wealthy person gives away some of their wealth, they become poorer, but actually they become richer. They are storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future. Of course, we need to remember, we always need to remember, that our giving must be done out of love or it profits nothing. If I give all my possessions to feed the poor and have not love, it profits me nothing. So, the, verse, the verses that we're looking at here today remind us, they should remind us, as we see some of the phrases here uh, about storing up for ourselves treasures, uh, treasures of a good foundation, they should remind us of what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. And I want us just to turn back to that. Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, verse 19.
Do not lay up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The proper use of wealth stores up true treasures in heaven. You could say it this way if you want to put it in modern terms. Jesus, who is the best financial advisor that ever lived, said there are two basic investment possibilities, heavenly and earthly. That's through two investment possibilities, the, heaven, the earthly and the heavenly. And Jesus tells us, Where we invest shows where our heart is. Where we invest shows where our heart really is because where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And he's also telling us, he told us in this section in the Sermon on the Mountain, it's the same thing Paul's saying here, the investment in the earthly realm just, if you just invest in the earthly realm, it's very uncertain. You might lose it all. And for sure, one day you will lose it all. But if you invest in the heavenly realm, you're going to keep it forever. So, that's the advice of the best financial advisor that ever lived. At another time, Jesus told the parable of a rich man whose land was very productive. So what did he do? Well, he said, I'm going to build bigger barns. Thinking that he had many goods laid up for many years, he decided to eat, drink, and be merry. What was he doing? Well, he was trusting in the uncertainty of riches and thinking only of the earthly realm. But what's the outcome of that whole thing? But God said to him, you fool. That was a very foolish investment. You fool. This very night your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you've prepared? So is the man who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. What we learn from these various teachings is that the rich person can be rich toward God if they will do good, Be rich in good works, be generous, and ready to share. Such things will make a difference in eternity. Someone said it this way, What I kept, I lost. What I gave, I have. What I kept, I lost. What I gave, I have. Well, I'd like to close then with a little bit longer quote from J.C. Ryle. But before I do this, I just want us to make sure we're on the right wavelength here. Um, I think it's good to realize that we shouldn't just think of these exhortations as only applying to people who have a lot more than we do. You know, we're talking about these rich people. Uh, And we tend to think of, well... I won't name names, but we tend to think of very rich people. Uh, In reality, 
it's good to remember that we are richer than most people who ever lived on the earth, and we are richer than most people who are living right now. In other words, if we were able to ask the past and present population of the entire world whether we here today are rich monetarily, the vast majority would say, yes, you Christians in America are very rich. That's just the way we would be viewed by most of the people who ever lived and are living right now, rich monetarily. Now, I know we must take into consideration many factors in in determining what constitutes richness in the various cultures around the world and comparing cultures and all that type type of thing, and a lot of that can be somewhat relative. Nevertheless, I think we should consider whether God might have something to say to many of us here today as we think about these things, and especially as we uh, hear this quote here uh, from J.C. Ryle. I thought the the way he worded things was so good that I couldn't improve on it, so I'm just going to give it to you. That's the way J.C. Ryle is in most everything he writes. You just can't improve on it. Okay, so anyway, he says this. Last of all, I entreat all professing Christians to encourage themselves in habits of liberality towards the causes of charity and mercy. Liberality toward the causes of charity and mercy. Remember that you are God's stewards. That is the idea. These things are not really yours. You're just giving them for a while. Remember you are God's stewards and give money liberally, freely, and without grudging. You cannot keep your money forever. You must give an account one day of the manner in which you have expended it. Oh, lay it out with an eye to eternity while you can. I do not ask rich men to leave their situation in life and go into the workhouse. I ask no man to neglect his worldly calling or to admit to to omit to provide for his family. Diligence in business is a positive Christian duty. Um, Provision for those dependent upon us is proper Christian prudence. But I ask all to look around continually as they journey on and remember the poor, the poor in body and the poor in soul. We are here for a few short years. How can we do the most good with our money while we are here? How can we spend it so as to leave the world somewhat happier and holier place when we are gone? Might we not abridge some of our luxuries? Might we not lay out less upon ourselves and give more to Christ's cause and Christ's poor? Is there none we can do good to? Are there no sick, no poor, no needy, whose sorrows we might lessen and whose comforts we might increase. I believe that in giving to support works of charity and mercy, we are doing that which is according to Christ's mind. So that was from his book, Practical Religion. It's a chapter on riches and poverty, which gives me just the opportunity here to mention when we're talking about works of charity and mercy, we have the opportunity to help out this group, the Lifeline uh, Pregnancy Help Center, 
with these baby bottles. Again, this would be an example of a work of mercy and charity. If you have been here through the years, we've done this, so you know about them. If not, you can, I'll put up a little pamphlet that tells about uh, what, these, uh, what you're supposed to do with these. You're supposed to put money in them. <laughs> now, I want to say something related to what Ryle said here. He probably emphasized works of charity and mercy, but did not bring up support of the local church because he was an Anglican. And the Anglican church is a state church. They, the church has supported the ministers and the expenses of the church are paid for by the government. But in our situation, we all need to remember the importance of regular support for the local congregation that we're part of. Now, I'm not bringing this up so that the elders might receive more. Uh, we have been graciously and amply provided for through the years. Nor am I bringing this up for the sake of the needs in the church. I'm constantly amazed at the way God provides for the needs that arise in the body. Tremendous uh, giving and help for one another. And uh, it's, it's a real blessing to see that. And, of course, I'm not bringing this up because God needs money. I bring this up because we all need to periodically ask ourselves, am I really using the resources that God has given me in ways that demonstrate that Christ died for me and which show that the gospel is a priority in my life? I mean, it's just good to give a little self-check every once in a while on this, uh, in this area. Am I truly handling my money so as to take hold of that which is life indeed, being gracious and ready to share? Am I giving on a regular basis to the needs of the local church? And if not, why not? I mean, we need to ask ourselves this. I'm not trying to make anyone feel unnecessarily guilty about this issue. I know that there's some here who would be glad to give more if they had more. Um, and that comes because they desire to, to please Christ and to express some thankfulness for what Christ has done for them. Our giving should always be motiva motivated by gratitude for the grace of God that he's shown us in Christ. In other words, gracious giving finds its source in God's great gift of his Son for our redemption. Our giving should not be motivated primarily by fear of hell uh, or a sense of duty, or even, in one way, it shouldn't even be motivated by a desire to lay up treasures in heaven. You know, I'll, I just got to give this so I can get a lot more in heaven. That's not really the right motivation. Uh, our main motivation should be Christ's redeeming love. The love of Christ shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Knowing that we've been bought with a price, the precious blood of Christ. We desire to glorify God by gladly giving. First, we just give our lives. That's where you start. You give your heart to Christ. And then, uh, things from the material realm. Uh, I like, you know, in this area, when we're talking about these things, this verse out of Second Corinthians chapter 9 is so good. Let each one 
do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly, nor under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Let me quote J.C. Ryle one more time here, just briefly. He says this, Nothing will ever cut up selfishness by the roots but the love of Christ. You're not going to deal with that selfishness through exhortations about giving more and that type of thing. It's the love of Christ. That's what cuts down at the root of selfishness. Once let a man see the fullness of the meaning of these words, Christ loved me and gave himself for me, and then he will delight to give himself to Christ and all that he has to his service. He loved me and gave himself for me. If we're stingy or negligent in our giving, we need to examine our relationship with Christ. That's what it comes back to. Are we really trusting him or are we still setting our hope on the uncertainty of riches in some way? May we all be taking hold of that which is life indeed. And I say this to myself as much as to anyone else here this morning. May we all take these things and realize that we need to be taking hold of that which is life indeed. Not holding on to these things. Taking hold of that which is life indeed. For the love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, that they who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. So, that is just some thoughts related to these verses, that which were directed towards those who have riches in this world. Lord willing, we'll look at the last two verses of First Timothy the next time that I speak. And we'll be hopefully finishing up then in this letter that uh, Paul sent 2,000 years ago to his young co-worker, Timothy.